This sermon was recorded at the Church of Christ, Wheeler area, located at 1500 South Allen L. Bean Boulevard in Wheeler, Texas. Our regular meeting times are at 10.30 a.m. and 2.30 p.m. each Sunday. Come join us as we seek to worship God in spirit and in truth. This evening, we want to uh, have a study from a minor prophet. And this minor prophet is called Micah, and we'll look at a few thoughts and base our thoughts in this book of Micah. If you'd like to turn to the book of Micah and read as we go through some verses talking about Micah, and particularly we will land on a few verses and some particular thoughts that Micah had. Micah is a minor prophet. He's one of the 12 minor prophets. Now, when uh, for those who may be younger and may not understand, when I was a kid, when I would hear a preacher say minor prophet, I thought he was less important. And, and so I'd say, well, that's minor. I don't need to study from a minor prophet because I need to be considered with major things. And so the major prophets sounded a lot better to me. <laughs> that's not what a minor prophet means. A minor prophet is called that and characterized that because of the length of the book. There are 12 minor prophets. Micah is one of them. And Micah comes to us, uh, and some of the prophecies that he teaches and that he is prophesying of are so common to you, but you may not know exactly this is the prophet that wrote them down and said them. Micah's time was about 735 uh, years before Christ, or 700 years before Christ. He lived in that period of time, and he's w most widely known for his Bethlehem prophecy, and that is the prophecy that prophesies that Jesus will come forth out of the city of Bethlehem, as was quoted in Matthew 2, verses 5 and 6, and Micah's prophecy of that is listed in Matthew 5, verse 2. And so that prophecy is well known to just about everybody that uh, we know that Jesus was prophesied to come out of the city of Bethlehem and the odds of that happening were astronomical for a person 700 years before Jesus to be born to name the city that he would be born in and that uh, city that the Messiah would come from. Some of the uh, commentaries that you will read and maybe look at that uh, mention uh, Micah, one says that he was the prophet of the poor and downtrodden. I believe Haley says that. And uh, this is indeed true. A lot of it was the time period that he was in and the period of time that Israel was living and the things that they were suffering. And not only the things they were suffering, but the things they were committing. And Micah spends some of his time dealing with these things that are treacherous that Israel was uh, committing. Uh, Smith says he had Amos' passion for justice and Hosea's heart for love. Now, when I started looking at Micah and I started thinking about that and I saw that quote and I see the similarity in reading the book of Micah and the book of Hosea and we need to see that similarity and hopefully by the end of the lesson tonight, by the end of this study, you'll see some of the similarities between Hosea's prophecy, who was also a minor prophet, and Micah's uh, prophecy. The message of the book of Micah is the coming kingdom. 
Micah is looking at the coming kingdom. Now, this kingdom that he is looking for is a kingdom that you and I exist in today. Micah could see through the Holy Spirit of God and through this revelation that God was giving him, there was a coming kingdom. And Micah speaks of that coming kingdom. Uh, notice he says, that, hear, ye all, hear all ye people, hearken, O earth, and all that are therein, and let the Lord be witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. And in this passage, he speaks of the judgment. And we want to think about some of the judgment that Micah speaks of. Not only does he speak of the coming kingdom, but he also speaks of judgment. And Micah is one of these prophets, as many prophets are in the Old Testament, that is constantly forewarning Israel about their life and about the committing that they, uh, the things they are committing as a nation or as the people of God. We see the children of Israel as a picture and a type of the church. And therefore, Micah is giving this judgment to Israel if you keep going down the path that you're going. The wages of sin is death. God's judgment is going to come upon you. And Micah's message is one of the coming kingdom. This may be a uh, particularly favorite passage of yours, and you may have heard this many times. But uh, the passage reads this way, Micah 4 and 1 of the coming kingdom. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains and it shall be exalted above the hills and people shall flow into it. He's talking about a coming kingdom. He's talking about the kingdom of the church. And he says in the last days. That last days is the last age. You and I live in the last age. After this age, what we call the Christian dispensation today, there are no other ages. This is the last age. He says in this prophecy, in that period of time shall come to pass the mountain of the house of the Lord. Verse 2 says, and many nations shall come and say come and let's go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of God of Jacob and he will teach us of his ways and he will walk in his path for the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem and that's exactly what happened the kingdom was established and the word of God came forth out of Jerusalem first and we see that kingdom being established in Acts 2 and we see the prophecy of the nation of uh, or this nation of Israel uh, uh, being the place where the kingdom uh, spewed forth from on that day on Pentecost when the kingdom was brought into fruition, and we know it today as the church, there were people there of all nations, and they'd all gathered together to hear the word of God. And uh, Micah's uh, prophecy uh, is, a, uh, is fulfilled, and we see when the kingdom comes in this last day or this last age. If you're looking for another age past this one, uh, you're looking for an age that the Bible does not mention. For the Bible speaks of a last age or the last days. And we live in those last days. You and I live at a precious time, a wonderful time. It's a time that we can expect that now that the kingdom of God is here and that people can flow from all nations and we can all be a part of this great kingdom and we can all come to that mountain of the Lord or that place where the Lord dwells and where he rules. And that's what that prophecy is about. Jesus is the head of the church. 
And he rules there in that kingdom. And every person can flow into it at their will and their obedience to God. We live in that blessed time that Micah's message prophesied of. Micah's message also was one of blessings or forgiveness. And this is a particularly soft spot for me in this book of Micah. And the message of forgiveness, who doesn't love forgiveness? C.S. Lewis said everybody loves forgiveness until it's time that they have to forgive. But we all want forgiveness. And we all seek that. Micah, in his prophecy of this coming kingdom, he gives a forewarning of the evil that Israel is producing in their nation and in that church that is a falling away completely of the relationship of God. And he says there's a judgment coming. Secondly, he said God is going to have this kingdom where all nations flow into it, where he is the ruler, and there's going to be forgiveness. A blessed hope of forgiveness. Micah 7.18 says, Who is God like unto thee? Who is he like that pardoneth iniquity and passeth by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retaineth not his anger forever because he delighteth in mercy. What a wonderful statement. To paint us a picture of God. And toward the end of the book of Micah's message, he's telling us, yes, there's judgment. Yes, there's a kingdom coming. And yes, God is a forgiving God who is like God. Mike asked a question about midway through this uh, short book that is a question I'd like to pose to you tonight and for the remaining part of our study, I'd like for us to land here for a few minutes with this question. And he asked Israel this question. He says, wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves of a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams or with 10,000 of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He hath showed thee, O man, what is good and what doth the Lord require of thee, but to do justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. Micah asked this question, what does God require of you? When I was a young man, one of the favorite theological questions was, and I heard it many times, and I would always scratch my head, and I'd try to figure out the best way to answer it to shut the question up, and I never was completely successful. You've experienced that. But the question was, is, what is the minimum response for salvation? <laughs> what is the minimum response of salvation? A question like that is such a triggered question and such a loaded question because it's looking at motives, it's looking at many different things. And furthermore, we want to confine God and we want to say, if you've got a minimum response to this, then you're okay. And then we end up making the definition of what is the minimum response for salvation. A question really like that cannot be answered sufficiently and uh, satisfy anybody, especially God. But Micah asked a question, what does God require of you? 
And he's asking this question not for the same motives or the same reasons we might ask a question of what is the minimum response for salvation, but he's wanting Israel to look at what they are committing because remember, part of Micah's message is this great judgment against them because of their evil doings and how they're treating people and how they're acquiring what they're acquiring. So he says, what does God require of you? The answer to this question is, is comprehensive. And perhaps it's the most uh, succinct question or answer given uh, to a question in the Bible. It speaks really plainly, but really comprehensively. And Micah is answering this, and keep this in mind, that he's answering this in regard to Israel. But you remember that Israel is a picture of this spiritual kingdom that's coming, that Micah is prophesying of. So the question then would become uh, appropriate to us, and we would ask, what does God require of me in this kingdom? Romans 15.4 says that for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of scriptures might have hope. I hope tonight as we study a minor prophet from the Old Testament that you don't find this boring and uh, not applicable to your life because surely it is. And when we study these people and these teachings from the Old Testament, no, we're not uh, studying a covenant that is appropriate to us today, but we're certainly studying a type of the covenant that is appropriate to us and a picture of the covenant. And the things that happened are for our examples and for our learning. So let's keep in mind then this question that Micah asked Israel, what's required of you? What's required of you? You know, that question bodes a number of questions to me. Just that question alone. It brings forth a question that says, you mean, do you mean that something is required of me? <laughs> because a lot of people would like to think about God as not requiring anything, wouldn't they? We live in a world today where there are no requirements. And the idea of come as you are may sound great, but really what they're saying is there's nothing required. Nothing. And that's just not true. The fact that Micah asked this question means that there is something required. And there are requirements from us, just as there are requirements from the nation of Israel uh, 700 years ago. And then Micah says and repeats what Israel might have thought. Now this is interesting to me too, because if I make application to what Israel might have thought, I might can make application of what I might suppose and what I might think are the requirements that God imposes upon me. Wherewith shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Notice, with calves a year old. You know what that's saying? Now, if I'm not mistaken, and I'm not much of a cattle man, I'm certainly not a cattle baron, but the calves of a year old are the most valuable, are they not? 
That's the, that's, the, that's the age generally in that age range that's going to bring the most money. That's the, that's the ones you want to slaughter and eat. Those are the best. So Israel's answer, according to Micah, might be, well, I'll just give him the best I've got. Will that be satisfactory? I'll just give him the best. I'll give him those calves that are a year old. Well, then Micah says, well, hold on a minute. How about the rams? Would, would God be pleased with a thousand rams? You remember the other night we talked about the hamster on the wheel? <laughs> For those of you who were not here, uh, the hamster on the wheel is the way of life that we get into when we start serving ourselves and serving other people. To be pleased, to be pleasing to other people. The hamster on the wheel is the hamster that gets up there and he runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and runs and goes nowhere. Accomplishes nothing, but he's running. He's doing something. Now I think about this thousand rams. Okay, if I'm going to give the calves of a year old, how about if I just step it up one notch? And I'll give a thousand rams. Thousands of rams. Or with 10,000 <laughs> rivers of oil. Will God be satisfied with that? Will that, will that meet God's requirements? 10,000 rivers of oil. Now look at, look at the progression of this. And the question that Micah is posing to Israel. You want to please God? Do you really want to please God? Do you think that if you give him the calves of a year old, that that's going to make him happy? Or thousands of rams? Or ten thousands of rivers of oil? Can you imagine ten thousands rivers of oil? Oil was a valuable, valuable commodity. Will that satisfy God? Well... What about if you just give your firstborn for your transgression? Will that satisfy God? Aren't you thankful that you don't serve a God like that? I am. <laughs> I'm thankful I serve a God who is merciful, kind, and compassionate and gave his only begotten son. To die for me. And I could get on the hamster wheel of life and I could try and try and try and try and I could fail and fail and fail. And I might even appoint to all of these accomplishments. But yet, I'm not satisfying God. Have you ever satisfied God with anything that you've ever done? You've been that perfect? I haven't. A complete satisfaction out of the righteousness of myself? That's what Micah's asking Israel. The fact that God did speak of some of these things uh, is important because the command to the Israelites to offer sacrifice is clear. But these things are an exaggeration or hyperbole 
that is showing us that there is no satisfaction in these things. God never commands us to give 10,000 rivers of oil in order to be saved. God never commands, has never even entered his mind that you would sacrifice your child. These are all exaggerations to Israel. He did speak of some of these things. He did speak of sacrifice. He did not speak of sacrificing your child. So why would God do that here? It's to show us this great exaggeration of never being able to satisfy God with what we do and by the rituals that we might perform. Now, let's keep in mind that it is not a sacrifice unless it's valuable to the one who offers. But even the most valuable lacks to please God if it's not accompanied by something else. So this should give us pause to think about our motives and our actions. Now we are commanded still to sacrifice. Do you realize that? I believe the Apostle Paul said, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. God still commands sacrifices, and the best thing that you can offer God, and really the only thing that you can offer God, is yourself. But our sacrifice is not one that is to be like the exaggerations that Micah shows to the children of Israel, of these things that's going to impress, these things that's going to obligate, but we give ourselves to God because it's reasonable. It's reasonable. The other things that Micah spoke about are certainly not reasonable. It's not reasonable for you to offer your firstborn to God. He doesn't want that. And if you did that, that would be a violation of, of who he is. Micah 6 and 8 says, He hath showed thee, O man... What is good? And what doth the Lord require of thee? Now I said Micah gave an answer to this question. This answer of filled with hyperbole. This, this, this question that is filled with an exaggeration to show us that we are incapable in our own life to satisfy God by our actions. Let's look at Micah's answer. Verse 8 says, but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with thy God. Let's think about that answer a few minutes in regards to our own life. Let's think about that answer as regards to the church. To do justly. Often we think about justice as punishment. In our dealings with people often is we want to say, well, I'll tell you what, I'll give them what they deserve. And I've got a knuckle sandwich coming their way. And the boy I used to work with, he said, oh, you best for me, I'll take you to Fifth City. <laughs> and he never would. 
but he was trying to indicate that he will serve out and dole out justice. Do you really know what justice is? <laughs> if you do, then you're pretty smart. Maybe you're smarter than anybody in the room because I don't think you know what justice is. How can I know what justice is? How can I even comprehend justice? But he tells us that we are to do justly. Now, doing justly is not the same thing as us doling out justice by our own discretion and by our own understanding. There's a lot more to it than that. I can do justly, but I may not understand justice in every circumstance and in everything that happens in your life. We think something happened that bad happens to us and it would be justice to uh, strike back. That's just not so. We may not know what justice is. As a matter of fact, we very seldom do, if ever. Because justice is left to God and to God alone. Let's look at a passage. Psalm 33 and 4 says, For the word of the Lord is right, and all his works are done in truth. He loveth righteousness and judgment. The earth is full of the goodness of the Lord. Notice Psalm 9 and 8. And he shall judge the world in righteousness. He shall minister judgment to the people in unrighteousness. There's going to be a judgment, and Micah spoke of this judgment to come. And he says there's going to be a justice that's coming your way. And the best that you, I can do is to do justly. But I don't know justice. That's left and reserved entirely for God. And that judgment that determines that is left entirely to him. The best that I can do is to understand a just God to some degree. And I can see the attributes of how God deals with people. And I can act and behave after the same manner. And therefore, then I can do justly. But I cannot determine justice. You remember the Apostle Paul tells us that we are not to uh, uh, strike back. Avenge not yourselves, he says. I will repay. Vengeance is mine. I will repay. Thus saith the Lord. Why we're not supposed to strike back and take vengeance is because we don't know all the time, every time, generally never, what is best. But we can behave ourselves and take after the attributes of God dealing justly. Uh, some of the attributes of God and his justice in the, way his, in, in the way that he operates and who he is, that he has revealed himself to us, and we see this in Jesus. We see it many, many places in the Bible of who he is. Number one, I'd like to, I'd like to point out some of the things of the attributes of God dealing justly. God deals justly. One of them is no favoritism. No favoritism. God doesn't look at you and count you as a favorite child. He, he looks at you as his child. And he loves you. 
but he loves me too. And he's going to deal justly because there is no favoritism. Romans 2 and 11 says there is no respect to persons with God. God doesn't respect you any more than he does me. I worked with a fellow back uh, uh, for many, many years. And he, we used to call him Henry Kissinger. Everybody called him Henry Kissinger. That was his nickname, and he'd answer to it. And the reason why he was called Henry Kissinger is because he was kind of like a uh, negotiator. <laughs> and he could talk his way out of just about anything. I had a fellow tell me one day, he said, you know, if when judgment day comes, he said, I want to be behind Henry. He said, because he's going to tie the Lord up for a long time talking and trying to negotiate his way out of this. A lot of people think about it like that. Do you think there's going to be a negotiation time on the day of judgment? Of course, he was being, he was being funny and trying to be funny, and he was. The fact of the matter is, is God is no respecter of persons. And no matter your skill set, no matter your color of your skin, no matter your education, no matter your age, God is no respecter of persons. So when God deals with us then, he deals with us justly because he's no respecter of persons. James 2 and 8 says, If you fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself, you do well. But if you have respect to persons, you commit sin and are convinced of the law as transgressors. Now, I don't understand justice. I don't know complete justice and absolute justice, but I do understand acting justly because God explains some things to us. So he tells Israel, if you're going to uh, please God, you're going to have to learn how to act like God. Take some of the attributes of God. Don't have a respect to persons. You and I have grown up and lived in a time where respect to persons is so commonplace, we overlook it and we accept it. But it's not acceptable to God. Prejudice in any form is sin. In any form. If I am prejudiced toward you because of your skin color, your ethnicity, or your social class, it becomes sin because it's not like God. And not only is it not like God, but it is spoken against because that's not dealing justly with people. I have to look at you. And this is what Micah is teaching Israel. And we teach the church this today. I look at you not from the outward appearance, but the inward appearance. If you're bought with a price like I am and you're God's child, I don't care what color you are. If I'm going to deal with you justly, I don't care where you came from. As a matter of fact, I don't even care what, you, what happened to you in your past because in the past, I can't do anything about that and you can't either. I've never met a time traveler. It's unchangeable. But what I can do is look at your circumstance today and I can show you Jesus. 
And I can offer Jesus to you and I can deal justly. Not based upon any prejudicial idea, but based upon who Jesus is. To do justly. This uh, should cause us to ask questions for our own personal examination. And any study, as far as I'm concerned, is not worth its salt unless it makes me question myself. And create questions that will cause me to personally examine who I am. So let's ask a question or two. When you look at people, do you view everyone with an unbiased eye? I'll tell you, I know that's difficult. I know it is. We have been raised in a prejudicial society, and I'm not talking about, uh, I'm not talking about skin color. I'm talking about any number of things. I know that uh, today the media, is, the skin color has become a big thing, but I'm telling you, if you look at someone and you say, I don't want to spend my time with them because teaching the gospel with those folks is just too hard. They don't know anything. And if I go to their home, that, their home may not be as clean as mine. Are you dealing with people justly? Do I view everyone with an unbiased eye? Now, I'm not expecting any of us to have the ability to view everybody like God views us. Because we're not God. But I can take on the attributes and I can deal justly. And I can start training myself and teaching myself that when it comes to preaching the gospel and sharing the gospel with people, everybody, we're all on an equal plane. And everyone should have the opportunity. Furthermore, in my business dealings, I need to deal justly. And that's not with prejudice. And it's not with a biased eye. Am I willing to serve all people? Not just those who look like me or speak like me or live near me. And the reason why I put this question, to be frank with you, is because I've seen in the church a desire not to take the gospel anywhere else but locally. And such a desire that they would actually throw up roadblocks to keep it from happening. I've seen that, and I'm assuming Sean has too. That's not dealing with people justly. Dealing with people justly is to take on the attributes of God and understand that we deal with people with an unbiased eye. And it doesn't matter who they are or where they came from, or the circumstances of their past, it does not matter. God deals with everyone and offers the same for every person. And if I'm going to examine myself, I'm going to ask myself, how am I living this right now? What steps am I taking in my life to deal with people justly? How am I living my convictions? Secondly, Micah said in his answer to the question that he posed with all of the exaggerations of what Israel might think, 
He said, to love mercy. Love mercy. You want to meet God's requirements? Deal with people justly. Love mercy. It's easy to love mercy when we're the receptor. Everybody wants forgiveness. But when it comes time in the hard times when you have to dole out the forgiveness, love mercy. Love mercy not only when you receive it, but when you extend it. Loving mercy means to be kind and compassionate even when we are mistreated. You know, Jesus made a lot of statements that we don't like to visit with very often because they're hard. And sometimes we have cataloged them in their mind. Well, those were the teachings of Jesus to those Pharisees and those old ugly Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they, don't really, they don't really apply to me today. One of them is, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. You mean I have to be merciful? Jesus has commanded me to be merciful. You know, God demands us to love mercy because he is merciful. I don't know anything about justice. But I know the attributes of God because he's shown me. And I see merciful God. I see one who loves me even in my worst sin. Hebrews 2.17 says, Wherefore in all things it behooved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in the things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered, being tempted, he is able to succor them that are tempted, or to comfort and to soothe. Much like placing a, a cool compress upon a sore to comfort or to give a warm embrace after a hard day's work or a place to sit down and rest our weary bones. Jesus said, I know how to do that. I've been where you are. And then he calls us to deal with people justly and to love mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Our actions toward our fellow man declare our love for mercy or our hatred for mercy. Merciful. Merciful, mighty Savior. How about you? Mercy? Or your idea of justice? Which is it? And thirdly, to walk humbly with thy God. In his answer, Micah says, walk humbly with thy God. The walk describes a way of life. Humbly means in submissive obedience. We have misunderstood uh, humility we have misunderstood it thinking that it is a beat down uh, uh, appearance or it is uh, a woeful attribute. It's not. Jesus shows us what humility means to walk humbly with thy God because he walked in obedience to God. 
Isaiah 57, 15 says, For thus saith the high and lofty one that inhabiteth eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place with him also that is of a contrite and humble spirit to revive the spirit of the humble and to revive the heart of the contrite ones. You've heard it said many times, and it never, it's always worth repeating. Jesus left that high and lofty place called heaven, and he came to make himself lower than the angels and to walk among us and to be one of us and to suffer as one of us. Why? Because he was humble. He was obedient to God. To walk humbly, then, is to walk in obedience to God. Not making yourself higher than God. Many live in order to please themselves. In the end, that's all they will have accomplished is they will have pleased themselves. And when you're lying on your deathbed and you look back upon your life and you reflect upon all of your accomplishments, you may be able to reflect and say, I did this and I did that and I was a mighty man or a mighty woman and thank goodness that I did all of that you have your reward. To walk humbly with God is to walk as the Apostle Paul walked. To say, I have fought a good fight and I've kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness that the righteous judge shall give me at that day and not to me only but unto all them that love is appearing. 1 Peter 1 and 24 says, For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away. Have you ever thought about that phrase in there, the glory of man? You know man has a certain amount of glory. I think one of the great humanists, uh, one of the major humanists of the uh, 19th century Made a uh, wrote a statement. He said, "Glory to man in the highest, for man is the maker of things." Man has glory. You see it every day in all of his accomplishments. But in the end, a thousand rivers of oil, or everything that you can give, even your firstborn, is not satisfactory. Because your glory and my glory will all wither away. We get tied up sometime in rituals and we think rituals are the ticket. That's what Israel was at. That's what they were about, rituals. Christianity is more than rituals. There are rituals that's involved in it just like there's sacrifice that's involved. God demands sacrifice. There are rituals. But there's more to Christianity than rituals. We go through a ritual every Sunday. Every first day of the week, it is a ritual. A ritual that God demands. We remember the suffering and death of Jesus Christ upon the cross. And that memory is so vital for us. And that memory and that ritual becomes so vital for us. But it's much more than just going through the motions. It's much more than just passing a little bread or a little grape juice. Those are rituals. God does, is not satisfied with that. To walk justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with the Lord. 
I mentioned to you that the book of Hosea and the book of Micah are very similar in the sense that they were written closely to the same time period, about 100 years apart. The book of Hosea was written, I believe, at about 600, uh, 650 B.C., Micah around 700. So they could have very well lived at the same, in the same time. I don't know. Their message was very much the same. Hosea's message was one of mercy and sacrifice. What will we have? Will we have mercy? Will we have sacrifice? Mercy and not sacrifice. There are two passages of the New Testament that Jesus uh, made a statement. In Matthew 9, verse 13, Jesus said, But go ye and learn what that meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And then again, three chapters later, we read Jesus say, but if ye had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, ye would not have condemned the guiltless. Jesus made this comment, and he's actually quoting a, a passage of Scripture. And sometimes we think about these Old Testament studies as something that may not uh, avail itself much to us today because we look at a different time period and all that. But do you realize that Jesus told these Pharisees to whom he quoted this to and to who he said this to? And mind you, he always was talking to someone. Jesus is talking to you too. But when he said that, he said, you go and learn what this means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Now, I challenge you this evening. I challenge you. The reason why I challenge you this evening is because Jesus quoted this twice. Now, if he quoted this twice, and it came from a minor prophet, surely it's worth you going and obeying the commandment of learning what it means. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. Where Jesus quoted from was this other minor prophet of Hosea. And it's found in Hosea verse, chapter 6, verse 6. Hosea writes, For I desired mercy and not sacrifice, and the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. Those of you who know the story of Hosea know that he is state, making a statement that is appropriate to his own life and to his own experience. But yet he's writing about the children of Israel being pictured as an adulterous bride. And Hosea has married this woman. And this woman is unfaithful to him. And Hosea finds that this woman's unfaithfulness is almost more than he can bear. And Hosea takes the picture of God in this. And God looks at us and he sees our unfaithfulness is almost more than he could bear. And Hosea reflects upon his wife. And actually, you ask yourself, what do you really want from your mate? What do you really want? Sean travels a lot. And uh, anybody that travels a lot and has gone away from home a lot, you know there's things that you miss. When you're gone. Things that are so vitally important to you. Like a clean house. <laughs> you know he could hire a maid to clean his house. What about a good meal? 
Sean eats good meals everywhere he goes. Look at him. Everywhere he goes. The meal is not what you're coming home for. The clean house is not what you're coming home for. It's not what you're coming home for. You can get that other places in other ways. Oh, you love the, the effort. I love it when my wife cooks me a birthday dinner. Man, that's good. She'll cook me my favorite foods one time a year. <laughs> and I relish it, but I want to tell you what, I love more than the fact that she's cooked me my favorite foods is I love the love that has caused her to do the work that she's doing. Hosea sat down with this unfaithful wife who had left him and run off with another man and he says, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. I challenge you to learn what this means because Jesus told us to know what it means. So Micah writes, Hosea writes, God wants our rituals. As a matter of fact, he even demands them. And quite frankly, there are things that Robin knows that I really want her to do. I don't want to live in a pig pen. I just don't. If I wanted to do that, I would go get me an apartment by myself. And she's going to keep a clean house, not just for herself, but for me. But that's not what keeps us together. That's not the driving force between our relationship. And the driving force between your relationship and God cannot be these rituals. They're important. Actual, after all, we are to live in obedience. Many people want rituals without requirements. This looks like uh, this is not one of our congregations. I found that picture on the Internet, and I didn't want to show anybody. Uh, any of our congregations for fear of embarrassment. That's some, I don't know who it is, but it looks similar to our congregations, don't it, in a lot of ways. You've got every head bowed, every eye closed. You've got a ritual there, a prayer. They're important. God wants that. But there's requirements that come with these rituals that we have to understand. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. God wants this life that is, you're going to live humbly in obedience to him and you're going to walk justly with him. You're going to walk after his attributes and you're going to love mercy because God loves mercy. Hosea if you know the story, and I will give you the end of the story when Hosea takes on the uh, role of God and God did the same thing with Israel and he did it with us. Hosea's wife had run away and later on she, she was found down at the slave auction. Man's got tired of it and he's going to auction her off. 
Hosea goes down to this auction block and he'd reflected, I will have mercy and not sacrifice. The thing that I really want is, I just want my wife to love me. And that's what God really wants from you and from me. He just, you, you know, the, a little girl, higher little girls, uh, when they were coming up, especially my oldest one, she seemed like she had an affinity for dolls. We were crossing uh, the Chesapeake Bay one time, and there's that, that bridge across the Chesapeake Bay is seven miles long, and Robin's pretty thrifty. <laughs> and we got there, and the toll on that thing was $25 to cross that bridge. And you cross over into Virginia. Actually, it's me that's thrifty on this deal. And I got there, and there was no turning around. $25 one way, and I go into Maryland. I have no business in Maryland. I got to come back, and I got to drive back on the other side another $25. So I'm paying $50 to drive 14 miles to cross this body of water in a car. And I look at myself and say, well, this is really intelligent. Boy, you have done it now. And so I come up with this bright idea that I tell my girls, all right, girls, you're going to see something historical. <laughs> And you're going to enjoy this better than anything. And I want you, Dot, I want you to stare out that window. And I want you to look out that window. I want you to obey me because it's $50. And let's, let's enjoy the Chesapeake Bay. And one mile, Garland, both of them had their Barbie dolls out. Back there playing. They could care less about the Chesapeake Bay. One mile. Dolls. You know why a little girl loves a doll? Well, it reminds her of something she wants to be, I think. I never was a little girl, but I think she wants a baby. There comes a time when that baby, where that doll is not going to satisfy her. Cannot satisfy her. Grown women don't play with dolls, but I tell you what, they'll play with babies. <laughs> you know why? Because a baby could love them back. It's the loving back. And a woman who loves her child, she wants that affection returned. There's nothing like having that little child up next to you and holding you as you hold them. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. God wants your love and your devotion. Why? Because he is love. And love always wants that in return. If you're here this evening, Christ died for you. Hosea went down to that auction block and he saw his wife on that auction block. And the bid started going, and he raised his hand. I'll bid. Somebody else's bid. Hosea says, I'll bid. It's my wife. I love her. And all I've ever wanted was for her to love me back. I'll bid. And the scripture tells exactly how much he paid for his wife. 
And he brought his wife home and he said, now you're my wife. I bought you. You're mine. Jesus bought you. The question is, will you come home with him? Will you grab his hand? And will you love him? Not because of the rituals, and not because that you could fulfill all of these pseudo demands, but because he first loved you. Thank you for listening to today's sermon podcast. If you have questions about what you have heard or would like to know more information, please contact us by emailing cfcwheelerarea at gmail.com or look us up on Facebook or Instagram and send us a message there.